Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, unveiled the government's all-respiratory virus plan last week, which included the scrapping of the COVID-19 five-day isolation rule. Quote, our collective efforts are helping us move away from a crisis phase to a more sustainable approach to a long-term containment of COVID-19. Reaction has been mixed, with many questioning how this approach, this new COVID game plan, will help prevent the spread of the virus, and in particular, the highly transmissible variants and subvariants. Joining us now with his view is Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases expert with the University Health Network. Good to have you on the show again. Oh, thank you for having me back. So last week, Dr. Moore, we haven't seen him in a while, but when he does make appearances, he makes waves. And this was the new all-respiratory virus plan that included something that some are considering controversial, and that's the scrapping of the five-day isolation rule. What are your thoughts on this particular part of the plan? I mean, I think we have to remember what the previous plan was as well, right? The prior plan was wait, if you're COVID positive, you wait five days. After five days, if your fever is resolved, you can come out of isolation and you should be wearing a mask for a 10-day period of time. The current plan is wait till you feel better, wait till your fever resolves, and then 24 hours after that, you have to come, then you can come out of isolation and you can continue to wear a mask. Both plans, both plans uh, basically have people that are coming out of isolation that are potentially transmissible to others. Uh, so I think the take-home point for me is, you know, obviously we have to be aware that people might be coming out of isolation and, and still be transmissible to others. You should really, if people are coming out of isolation, they should be wearing that mask, and they should be wearing that mask for a minimum of 10 days. The other point, too, is that we've got a lot of rapid tests available to us here in Ontario and elsewhere in Canada. You can do a rapid test. They're not perfect. But if your rapid test is still positive, especially between day 5 and 10, it's a good sign and a decent indicator that you might be transmissible to others. And if you still have the ability to not be around others during that time, that's a wise decision. And I think lastly, it kind of raises a bigger point of, you know, what are we doing going to work sick? Yeah. It's beyond COVID-19 that we can apply this to every other infection or other illness. I mean, we should really have the capacity to ensure that people can stay home while they're sick and still be able to put food on the table and, uh, and, and pay rent. You know, it's interesting, the reaction has been rather negative from some school unions and from parents and from teachers as well, uh, and from the general public, just concerned that the responsibility now lies on the shoulders of the individual to make right, smart choices and to determine whether they're well enough to go back to work. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to put the onus on the individual, we have to give the individual the tools for success. And that means good education, good transparent communication, transparent data, uh, you know, access to testing, access for the ability to stay home if you're sick, uh, masking, uh, ed education about masking, vaccination, therapeutics. You know, I think it will be a natural progression. And I, obviously, for some, I think the province is moving a little too fast. For others, we still hear that uh, this should have been done long ago. So. You know, I think if you, sadly, if you go on social media, this ends up being a, you know, a very contentious issue. But I, I got to tell you, back on planet Earth, mm -hmm. we actually have more, I would say just 
and we have conversations about this and pros and cons of, of various policies and, you know, whether or not this will have any meaningful impact or, uh, and, you know, I think the key point though, at least with this particular policy is that we should acknowledge that people can come out of isolation while transmissible to others. If you have the ability to avoid that, you absolutely should. You should be wearing a mask. And, and again, like even after 10 days are up, let's remember COVID's transmitted primarily in indoor settings and it's transmitted in between people through the air. You should be wearing a mask if you want. They're not perfect. They're definitely not perfect, but they certainly can reduce your risk of getting COVID. And if you are positive of transmitting COVID to others. So in your opinion, does it make sense as we move indoors, as we head towards fall, does it make sense to to rule out the, the forced isolation and uh, the dropping of the masking mandate? We're back inside. It's highly transmissible. Who knows what variants are around the corner? Does this make sense? I, I think we're moving away from mandates. And, you know, we are in a different place now than we were in 2020 and in 2021. Um, and obviously, we can acknowledge that COVID is still a problem, that it's not going away, that it's going to wax and wane for the foreseeable future. But we can also look at the fact that we have very good vaccinations. We have uh, masks available. We have rapid tests available. I really think if there's a, an area to improve upon, it really is on the public communications. And uh, having coordinated, accurate communications with, you know, you couple that with role modeling, right? Putting, you know, we know masks aren't perfect, but for God knows a million reasons, we've decided to polarize that particular aspect but you know in the absence of mandates if you have senior political or public health leadership just say listen put on a mask indoors it's not perfect but it'll work to reduce your individual risk of getting COVID-19 and model that behavior and you see that coordinated across uh, you know multiple uh, levels of government and multiple geographic settings and public health you know it probably will go a longer way. I think, though, you know, a lot of these end up being political decisions in the end, and you are seeing, regardless of the political party, you are seeing um, a shift away from mandates now in 2022. Can I ask you this? The messaging in all of this, and for the average individual listening, and that would include me, you know, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a member of the government. Does this uh, lay a foundation for people who poo-pooed the pandemic right from the beginning, did not want to be vaccinated, had difficulty with all of the, the aspects of lockdowns and so on? Does this kind of messaging where the rules are being relaxed and the mandates are being dropped, does it lay the foundation for people to say, see, I told you, there's nothing to take seriously here? We're saying, see, I told you from every uh, <laughs> from every, <laughs> every major pol uh, polarized uh, mm -hmm. viewpoint. I mean, like, it, this is just going to happen. And, and quite frankly, I think we could acknowledge that, you know, the, the, we're in different, we're in a different place now, right? 2020, we were dealing with a lot of unknowns um, and you know, we rapidly figured out what we were dealing with. Then we had the era of the vaccine, initial vaccine rollout, but then we also had a new era of worsening uh, and more virulent uh, variants of concern. Now we're in an era where, you know, we have Omicron that's extremely transmissible, but a highly vaccinated population that also has a high uh, rate of infection and recovery from infection. And again, by no means should we pretend that this is over, but you have to 
adapt your policy. You have to adapt your rules to keep up to date with science and with public health principles that also, you know, there's a lot that goes into policy. It's not just science, right? You, a lot of this, that we, we can't ignore that there's a sprinkle of politics and uh, certainly integrating the will of the general public as well. Uh, so I think there's a lot that goes into policy, but the policy has to be updated to, uh, to the current time, and policy should change with time. I think if we see out-of-date policies, it does a lot to harm public trust in public health and, 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 and major institutions. So that's a long-winded way of saying We've got to stay up to date with this, expect things to change with time, which true in 2020 might not be true in 2022. So we look around the world and I have seen that China, for instance, uh, has uh, put 65 million people in lockdown after more than 1,500 COVID-19 cases emerged. That's pretty, pretty big reaction to what seems to be a small number of, of cases. But they, it tends to be the litmus test of what's going on in other countries, in particular China. Is there... Are you worried at all that this is a, a harbinger of what's to come? I mean, every country has taken a, a slightly different approach. China is, to my knowledge, the only country on the planet that is still uh, implementing a zero COVID strategy. And, you know, they're in a tough situation. They have a massive population. They vaccinated a lot of people, but, you know, I, I don't know enough about the data coming out of China or the quality of the data coming out of China. Uh, but so some of this, I, I try to be as accurate as possible, but I appreciate there's some uncertainty here. But my understanding is there's a large number of people who are on the older end of the spectrum who either have not been vaccinated. Uh, some of the vaccines that have been used in China aren't as effective as the vaccines that we've used in other parts of the world. Uh, and I think they recognize that, you know, obviously there's multiple ways to control COVID other than taking the more extreme measure of controlling covid uh, if they took the other extreme measure, which is basically the letter rip approach, they could be in some serious trouble uh, because they have, um, you know, a, 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 a probably a vulnerable population that may be at risk for more severe infection, like hospitalization and, and sadly death, given there are, uh, what we're hearing, a lot of uh, people on the older end of the spectrum with risk factors for more severe illness that may not have uh, ideal protection against that through their vaccination program. So, Listen, I'm not going to apologize for what they're doing, and I don't think a zero-COVID strategy is a good long-term strategy whatsoever. Um, but uh, I think all eyes are on China to see what they're going to do next because, uh, quite frankly, I don't, I don't know how you walk down from something like this. Yeah. Let's bring it back home, our own backyard here in Canada and in Ontario. The And it's about vaccines. I mean, that seems to be at the center of every part of our discussion so far. The Omicron-specific vaccine it is being lauded by many, uh, and and many arms are ready with their sleeves rolled up. They, we just don't have it yet. Uh, what are your thoughts on it and, and having it rather than the second booster or having the second booster and then having the Omicron-specific vaccine? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's just a, as a big picture, I think all the, the big hope is that this uh, updated vaccine will bring back some of the protection against infection and onward transmission that we saw much earlier in the vaccine rollout. Uh, that would be amazing. That would absolutely be amazing. And we actually don't know to what extent it will do that. But, you know, there's some early clues from lab studies that, you know, maybe this will bring back durable protection and that would be incredible. 
I should remind people that the current vaccine or the, the, that we've been using this entire time still has remarkable protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And it's expected that the updated vaccine will have that same remarkable protection, but also bring back that protection against infection and onward transmission. We're just not sure to what extent it will do that. I'm really, uh, I'm excited. I really hope that this works. And, and certainly there's a lot of people that will be eligible for this vaccine. I, at the end of the day, there's two big points. One is NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, has really led us in the right direction and have they've had wonderful advice throughout. And big picture, if you're about six months out after either an infection or uh, your most recent vaccination, it's a good idea to get a booster, especially especially if you're on the older end of the spectrum, like 60, uh, 60 years and older, or if you have underlying medical conditions that put you at greater risk for severe infection. That's one point. I think the, um, the second big point, too, is that there's a lot of nuance now, right? Early in the vaccine rollout, it was pretty straightforward. Get your first dose. And then get your second dose, and that was it. Like that, the, the recommendations were easy. You could make more blanket statements. Now, I think it's a lot harder, right? You've had different people who've had been vaccinated at different times. You've had some people who've had different infections at different times. You have different age cohorts. You have um, slightly different recommendations for different age cohorts. It's easy to be confused about this. And if anyone is uncertain of what to do, you know, don't take advice from mass media or social media get advice from your healthcare provider yeah, right on. and it's easy to say and hard to do right it is right you know i appreciate how people might have difficulty finding uh, or getting access to a, a family physician um some people even have family physicians and have trouble uh accessing them but it's worth it's worthwhile to really touch base with a, a healthcare provider and remind people that that doesn't just mean a doctor there are public health specialists there are nurses there are pharmacists. These are all pillars of the healthcare system that are knowledgeable on vaccination and, uh, and, and are also accessible as well. So I think there's a lot of different high caliber people that we can go to for advice on what to do. And, you know, speaking of frequency of vaccinations and so on, we, we hear that Dr. Fauci in the United States is suggesting that the COVID vaccination might become an annual thing like the flu shot. And that's been talked about here in Canada as well. I'm open-minded. Like, uh, let's just put it this way. We don't know. We, we don't know. Right now, and again, this, I hope this doesn't come across as controversial, but I think it would be an ideal situation to actually do the studies. Like, take the time to do the large clinical trials now to see, and even ongoing, to see who would be eligible or who would most benefit from vaccination and how we should vaccinate moving forward. I think that's an ethical way of doing things. I think it's a smart way of doing things. It's a cost-effective way of doing things as well, rather than just saying, yep, we're just going to vaccinate, you know, every, you know, 12 months or so for infinity. Like, we, 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 can, we can answer this question about who needs vaccines and when they need it, and it would be a smart, safe, ethical, cost-effective way to plan big clinical studies and, and do this. We have the capabilities to do this in Canada. There's capabilities to do this all over the world. And, you know, I, I'm not anti-pharma. I think, we, you know, they're an essential partner in, in healthcare, whether we choose to admit it or not. But you're not going to rely on the big pharmaceutical companies to do these studies because it's not in their best interest, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe it shows that, hey, uh, we don't need to vaccinate with the same degree of frequency. Maybe it'll show that people under a certain age group would not benefit from this vaccine, whereas others would. I mean, so it's not in their best interest to do it. I think we have to have to do this with 
you know, academic partners and, and community partners. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, as we like to think that COVID-19 is slowly moving into the rearview mirror, it is still very much in the car. As you look back on the past two and a half years, what have you learned about COVID-19, about how governments are handling all of this, how the population handles this? And I'm thinking about Ontarians, but also, and I know you don't like to talk about yourself, but what have you learned about yourself through this? <laughs> a couple of high-level points here. Number one, <laughs> this is a much better conversation over a beverage. Yes, <laughs> a bevy or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rather than, you know, the, <laughs> the five-minute soundbite. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, you know, obviously I think we've all learned a lot about how if I was going to pick one thing, and I, there's a lot. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot, and I wish I had uh, prepared for a question like this. But uh, one of the big mm-hmm. things is, you know, how to how to how to approach this in the future. Because, like, as much as we don't want to admit it, there's going to be another pandemic. There is, there absolutely is. I don't know what it will be, and I don't know when it will be, but we'll we'll have to deal with this again. Hopefully, not in our lifetimes. And I really hope that we can figure things out between now and then in terms of how are we going to manage this? How are we going to think about our borders? How are we going to think about protecting vulnerable communities? How are we going to continue some momentum on protecting, you know, essential workers and low-income neighborhoods and, and, and uh, those who don't have necessarily the means uh, to protect themselves? How are we going to actually invest in early detection systems globally? Or are we going to treat, you know, global issues in a regional manner, which is completely ineffective. You know, how are we going to mass produce vaccinations and other essential therapeutics uh, for the world rather than, you know, hoard them in, in high-income countries? Like, I really would hope that we have a, a global and a national and a provincial and a municipal playbook that's sound because we will have to deal with this again. I'm totally not optimistic that that's going to happen, by the way, but <laughs> I think about this from time to time. A very solid answer and no bevies uh, in sight. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases expert at University Health Network. Thanks a lot for this discussion, and I look forward to our next time together. Have a great day. Nice to chat. I'm Tina Cortez. Children across the country are back in school. And also this week, a new report from Children First Canada about the top 10 threats to childhood, putting the lives of 8 million kids at risk. To break down the details, we are joined by Sydney Campbell, PhD candidate from U of T and on the research team for this report. Welcome to the feed, Sydney. Thank you, Tina. I'm happy to be here. Now, after the last couple of years, this is likely the last thing parents want to hear, don't you think? Well, I think in, in some ways, a lot of the information that we share is not shocking. Uh, really is a kind of a recap on what young people and those around them, including parents, have seen over the past year and longer, especially throughout the pandemic. So um, I, I hope that it re- it's relatable for a lot of families. So can you take us through some of your findings? Absolutely. Um, So this year we have the top 10 threats that young people have faced. And these include, for instance, unintentional and preventable injuries. This is the leading cause of death amongst children and youth between ages 1 and 24, which is 
um, quite concerning. Another um, threat that we have is poor mental health. Um, this includes things like um, you know, self-harm, suicide, depression, and anxiety. For instance, more than half of young people aged 12 to 18 experience depression, which is another major concern. Um, it also includes things like vaccine-preventable illnesses, where one in four children are behind on their routine vaccines. And for me, um, a major concern and something that was highlighted and exists throughout the report is that in, um, in many ways, there's a disproportionate impact of the pandemic on equity-seeking and equity-deserving children and youth. So those are some findings, um, but obviously there's a lot more in the report. And so where do we go from here? What are some of the solutions to some of these issues? Great question. Um, throughout the report, we highlight specific recommendations for each of the top 10 threats. So for instance, when we're talking about um, mental health concerns, we talk about the need to invest in um, care that's provided to young people and to use a strength-based approach when delivering service and care in the mental health sector for young people. Um, and then we also have overarching recommendations where we call on the government of Canada to um, you know, do things like develop an independent commissioner for children and youth, create a national children's budget, and things of that nature. Is there anything in your findings that surprised you? I think for, for me, something that was very surprising um, since I wrote this report this year and last year um, is that really the existence of these concerns is continuing. And um, in, in many ways, the, the, the risks and the harms are growing. Um, and so while there's all of this evidence that indicates all these impacts, there's really a lack of action on the part of many stakeholders. And then on the other hand, there's also a lack of investment in um, developing and finding new evidence related to some key points. And we highlight that throughout the report, but um, again, I think it really comes down to the fact that we need to invest in children and um, the harms that they're facing in the immediate period, but also in the long term um, as well. Now, one of the findings focused on the higher rates of infant mortality more than other wealthy nations. These statistics are quite alarming, don't you think? Absolutely. And I think it's um, that's a great point to highlight. Canada actually ranks 30th among 38 affluent countries for the infant mortality rate. And that's quite surprising considering that we are a high-income country. And in many ways, um, you know, we have great research, great care here, yet um, again, related to this lack of action, lack of research, um, a lot more can be done to you know, lower these infant mortality rates, for instance, and really uh, improve the lives and health of children and young people. Another finding was the unintentional injuries that are the leading cause of death for children and youth in Canada. In fact, a 28% increase. Why is that? It's a great question. I think there's a lot of different factors contributing to this. Um, so on the part of all of the stakeholders, there's a lot of inaction, as I've already mentioned. But then there's also a lack of research. So while we have a lot of information about the statistics, there's a lot we still don't know. And um, when we don't know something, we don't exactly know how to respond. So I think maybe next steps include um, investing in, in researchers and in research to really understand some of these um, preventable harms and um, the causes for, for those harms in order to prevent those those harms from happening. 
our children, our young people, are they are they speaking up? Are they sharing their stories and these threats? Absolutely. I think when we really listen to young people, we can learn a lot from their experiences, from their voices. Um, with Children First Canada in particular, um, we have a group called the Young Canadians Parliament who gather and um, meet with parliamentarians to discuss the concerns that matter to them. And for instance, climate change and systemic discrimination and racism were raised in um, many of those calls and in a report that they wrote, um, indicating that you know, their concerns really do align with what we outline in this report and um, kind of another, another way in which we need to act and put these um, threats behind us. Was there a threat or an issue which increased either during or because of the pandemic? Yes. Um, I think we also highlight throughout the report the role of COVID in each of the threats. Um, for instance, when we're thinking about child abuse, um, the school closures and um, you know, not being able to visit um, clinicians in the hospital has been associated with a um, rise in the number of harms and injuries uh, as a result of child abuse, for instance. Other things like um, vaccine preventable illnesses. So as I mentioned, one in four children are behind in their routine vaccinations. And because of that, um, because of the closures of clinics, that's going to have an impact in the long term for young people. And other things like food insecurity and poverty, those are associated with um, COVID and reduced um, income for a lot of families. So um, to answer your question, I guess in many ways the, the threats are um, being heightened as a result of the pandemic. And it's, it's scary to see and it's scary that nothing significant has been done to uh, relieve that. And that's what I wanted to ask you about. So where do we go from here? What is your biggest takeaway from this report? I think for me, the overarching message of Raising Canada 2022 is that children and yet youth will continue to suffer short and long-term harms and repercussions when we fail to intervene. And so there's an urgent need for action on the part of all stakeholders, um, you know, society at large and um, those in government to either prevent or neutralize the top-ten threats that children are facing. Sydney, if our listeners want more information, where can they find it? The report is now published and available on childrenfirstcanada.org. And um, we hope that you'll provide feedback on the report and share the findings. Thank you for sharing your research and your time with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Tina. After the break, remembering Terry Fox. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. 
hard to believe it's been 42 years since a shy young man from Port Coquitlam, B.C. began his marathon of hope. Terry Fox was determined to raise money and awareness for cancer research to help other Canadians in their battle against this deadly disease. It would be the fight of his life, a fight that Terry ultimately lost, but not before winning the hearts of millions of Canadians back then. And to this day, Terry Fox remains a true inspiration and a shining beacon of hope for all who have been touched by cancer. His younger brother, Daryl, joins us now on the feed to remember Terry Fox, to celebrate all that he had accomplished, and to recognize the difference he's still making today. Daryl, welcome to the show. It's so great to connect with you again. Oh, it's so great to talk to you, Anne. So the statistics that I was looking up on your website, they're staggering. Terry ran for 143 days, 42 kilometers per day. That's a full marathon each day. 5,373 kilometers in total. And an amazing $850 million has been raised so far. It's, that's incredible, Daryl. It is incredible, and all those numbers are, are correct, and well, well done, your, your homework, you've done your homework, uh, and, um, it, you know, we don't have to fudge the numbers when it comes to Terry, they're, they're real, they're, they're legit, I was fortunate enough to, to spend three months and be the third member of the Marathon of Hope in 1980, and uh, I spent those three months shaking my head, head looking at what Terry was accomplishing on a daily basis. Let's go back in time. You joined the Marathon of Hope, I believe, in New Brunswick. What was going on with Terry at that point? I know he began in uh, Newfoundland, and it was very quiet. There was not a lot of, of, of in, maybe interest isn't the right word, but there wasn't a lot of awareness of what he was doing. What was it like by the time you joined the camper van? <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, well, it, 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 there were early successes in the beginning, but certainly nothing uh, compared to what would happen when Terry crossed the border and entered Ontario in, in a couple of months after I arrived. But, uh, but it was quite, um, quite an amazing, that, that first day. I, I'd been there for many of the, the miles that Terry ra- ran preparing for the marathon. Of people don't realize, but he actually ran over uh, 5,000 kilometers in preparation for the marathon. Of but something was different that day, Anne, and you could see that Terry was actually in the midst of fulfilling a dream, that that dream was coming true, and he just fed off that energy. And, uh, you know, I knew right away I was witnessing something special and something that would be remembered for forevermore. I was only 17. I just graduated from high school, and yet I was part of this incredible adventure, and I was so thankful and blessed at that time. What was it like to travel with him? I remember him. I interviewed him. I had the honor in 1980 of interviewing him and running with him in Toronto. But I remember him as a very, very shy guy. What was he like to travel with as a brother? <laughs> well, you know, it, uh, it's interesting. So there were three of us cramped in this very um, smelly Ford van. So <laughs> it, I would have to say, and it was intense and very tense at times because look what Terry was accomplishing uh, every day. As you said, he ran a marathon every day for 143 days in a row. And Doug, and Doug Allward, his best friend, and I, as, you know, somewhat athletes ourselves, we knew what, ha- what went into preparation for that run every day. The mornings, the days were long. We got up at 4.30 every morning. Terry would start running at 5. Um, and it was complete silence the half hour that we drove to find where Terry had finished running the night before because that's where Terry was curled up in the back of the van in his sleeping bag, mentally preparing for the day ahead. We were exhausted, Doug and I, um, and we didn't have to get out of that warm, comfortable,
comfortable than and run a marathon. But it shows with the power of one that anything is possible if you believe in yourself. And that's what Terry did for 143 days in a row. And I saw it, and I saw it every day. And, you know, I, I'm <laughs> it's hard, even 42 years removed from the marathon of hope, not to be emotional when you start speaking about it because it's right there. It's within me every day. I have a visual every day of Terry running. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's something that um, will move me for the rest of my life. And I'm so fortunate that I had that opportunity. Why did he do it? Why did he want to to do this marathon? And, and why did he want to raise awareness and raise money for cancer research? A lot of people, when they have a difficult diagnosis, uh, they, you know, they can go many ways. And, and some just say, I'm, I'm sort of stepping aside from life. Others say, I'm going to fight this and I'm going to make it public. What were his reasons? Yeah, you, you, you meant, you referenced a very pivotal moment for, for Terry, and that was when he was diagnosed uh, at, the, at the tender age of 18. He thought that he was dealing with a, a basketball injury, and uh, that, that was his concern, that he might have to avoid playing basketball for a few months. But, um, but he knew something serious was uh, on the agenda when our, the whole family was gathered that night at Royal Columbian Hospital in Westminster, when Dr. Piper came in and told Terry that, um, no, this was not a knee injury, but you actually have osteogenic sarcoma, bone cancer. And because it, it's progressed so far, we're going to have to amputate your leg in, in, in six days. Well, you would think with that information, um, you know, Terry would be devastated and, and the family would be there to support him. But that's actually not how you know, things transpired that evening. And it was Terry that surveyed the room. I was bawling my eyes out, 14 at the time. So was younger sister Judy. Fred was, <laughs> was, was not in a good state. We were all struggling with this. So Terry realized he had to be strong for the rest of his family. And one of the thing, first things he said after being diagnosed was that I've always had to try my best to accomplish what I have to the age of 18. I have no idea what cancer is, but I can promise you I'm going to do my best to beat this disease. And that's how Terry approached cancer from that day forward. He was always positive. He was always optimistic. Um, and it was what he went through going through chemotherapy and 18 months of chemotherapy treatments where he saw the suffering of others, where he realized he was missing something from his life. And that was the, the idea and the concept of giving back. And he made a promise that if he ever walked out of the cancer ward alive, alive he would never forget those that he had left behind. So that's where the idea and dream running across Canada uh, circulated and surfaced from. What do you think Terry would, would feel about the amount of attention that has been focused on cancer research and on the Terry Fox runs across the country year after year? And what would he think about the amount of money that's been raised so far in his name? You know, he'd be really proud of, of, of the fact that we're continuing. Like He, he passed the baton to us. Uh, when he passed away in June of 1981, um, he would not be happy with the, the recognition of himself. Very uncomfortable with that. He, was, he stayed humble throughout the Marathon of Hope. He despised the attention that he was getting, but wanted it to be focused, as you just said, on, on fundraising for cancer research. And um, to that extent, Canadians have, and, and actually those around the world, have responded in, in a magnificent way. And he'd be so proud and thankful. I'm looking forward to... To, to this year, I'll be heading over to the UK to participate in the London Terry Fox Run and mm. on the Sunday, the 18th, and 
will be um, in Ireland the day before for for their run. So it it shows the extent that Terry's not uh, him personally again, but his vision of eradicating cancer has uh, has crossed this country and and uh, and is in countries around the world as well. And Daryl, what difference do you think that all of this money is making when it comes to the fight against cancer, eradicating cancer? It, it is. It, it's saving lives, and it, it is. Um, you know, you you can't argue with stats and figures. People are now living longer with cancer. The quality of life has improved, and they're and they're surviving cancer. We have a program at the foundation, um, the Terry's Team Program, and and these are uh, cancer survivors who have uh, gone and 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 through cancer and are are living proof that progress has been made. And you'll see them on Terry Fox Run Day this year. They're wearing their red T-shirts, representing that they have had cancer. And, uh, you know, what's happening over the years, Anne, is there's more and more red T-shirts because there's more and more people surviving cancer. One step at a time, one dollar at a time, but we are getting there, and $850 million has made a huge difference in saving lives over the last 42 years. And as you talk about that and you say one step at a time, I hearken back to Terry's unusual running style. It was really quite amazing, and I'll never forget it. And I know that he ran through through wind and rain and snow and excessive heat. How did he do it? <laughs> I was hoping you might be able to help me with that answer, Anne. Like, I, I don't have an answer. I've spent 42 years trying to, to you know, to answer that question, and, and it, there isn't one. You know, he, he proved that anything is possible, uh, that limitations are self-imposed, and that's how I live my life. <laughs> how could I ever feel that something is, that a goal or something I want to achieve is not attainable? Um, the only person stopping me is me. That's it. And I think that, um, you know, what Terry accomplished in 1980, running a marathon every day on a prehistoric leg that was made for walking purposes only and was crudely modified so he could run on, proved that, um, that anything is possible. So uh, that's the message. You know, we, there are thousands of schools that participate in the annual Terry Fox run every year, and that's how we start uh, the discussion and, uh, the, the, you know, the, the words that we share is that Terry was pretty average. He was average in every way, but determination and hard work. And look what he accomplished because he tried his very best. It's there if you want it. You know, the the Marathon of Hope ended in Thunder Bay. He didn't make it right across the nation, but he said this quote, and I'm going to ask you what it means to you. This is Terry Fox. Even if I don't finish, we need others to continue. It's got to keep going. Yeah, I love mm-hmm. I love every Terry quote, but that's uh, that's a, a a pretty powerful one because it is as I shared earlier. It's that you know the passing of the baton. He saw himself as only one member of the marathon of hope, and if if this wasn't a team effort, then um, he you know the run wouldn't be successful. And that's exactly what happened. Canadians picked up when Terry passed away, and they've been running for him and others for forty two years. And we will not rest until the marathon of hope is completed, and uh, that's the goal, and we're determined to to finish his run for him. Daryl Fox, you bring tears to my eyes as we speak. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. My pleasure, Anne. Nice speaking to you again. Coming up next on the feed, Lighthouse opens its doors. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Anne Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. 
Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Lighthouse Learning Center is starting this school year in a renovated 13,000-square-foot facility. Jim Lang with how they are helping children with autism find academic success. Well, it's September, back to the original grind, back to the routine, back to school, and back to some great education and learning with our friends at Lighthouse Learning and Development Center. You can get more details at their website, lhlbc.com, to talk more about what they're doing to help people in the region. Thrilled to be joined by Serena Thompson, their executive director. Serena, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Jim. How are you? Good. It's a very exciting time for people in the region, knowing that here we are in September 2022, and now the Lighthouse Learning and Development Center is part of a 13,000-square-foot facility on Edward Street in Aurora. This is big news for everyone in the region. Yeah, it's huge for us. We started at 5,900 square feet um, seven years ago, and we've over doubled in size for our kids. So it's pretty amazing. Well, I guess, uh, why the ne- uh, why was it necessary to expand so much? Was there that much demand for what Lighthouse is providing for families and kids in the region? Yeah, I mean, we, we outgrew the facility quite a while ago, but it was important for me to find a perfect facility like we did the first time around. And the fact of the matter is, is that our public school system just can't keep up with the demand that children with autism require in the school system. The individualized learning and that extra care and attention um, that our kids need. I, I think about when I was in school in the 70s, and I'm sure there were kids who were on the spectrum that was just simply not diagnosed and the medical community is better at it. And I think that's why a specialized school for kids with autism, no matter where they fall on the spectrum, Serena, I mean, it's a godsend for these families. It must be just so incredible for them to know they have a facility like this to help their children. Yeah, I mean, I I opened the school for my son, Daniel, and the reason was, was I found that a lot of people couldn't look past the diagnosis. Hmm. And an autism diagnosis doesn't preclude him from doing anything amazing. He just needs to be taught the way he learns in an environment that is supportive and caters to his needs. And I think more families now aren't finding the diagnosis to be the end of the world, you know, as we would have said years ago. It's just now we need to rejig how we're going to travel on our journey and who we're going to have join us. Speaking with Serena Thompson, who is the executive director of Lighthouse Learning and Development Center in Aurora, LHLDC.com. I guess for listeners who aren't quite aware of what Lighthouse provides, just explain how they help kids with autism on the spectrum, how they help them learn and thrive and survive. Absolutely. So we are a multifaceted center. So we do one-to-one ABA therapy. So we do the therapy for the little guys starting at, you know, two years old and giving them all of those basic skills that they require in life. Um, We're also a registered elementary school with the province of Ontario, so we do adhere to all of the regulations that the province mandates, including our ability to hold OSR. So anything that the kids do at Lighthouse is interchangeable with other private schools or public schools. We're also an inspected high school, so we give out high school credits. And that's a big one for me. You know, my son's going into grade 11, and he is able to do more than just earn a certificate of achievement. His journey might take a bit longer to get his high school diploma, but he's absolutely going to get there. And so what we do is we cater 
to these kids and we create an environment that allows them to learn at their pace in an environment that's supportive. We don't make them fit into our teaching box. We create a box that, that works for them. I think that's fantastic. And Serena, the one thing the Lighthouse also provides is is a support for parents to prepare the kids if they're on the spectrum for the upcoming school year because I'm sure the preparation, getting a child on the spectrum ready for the school year is a little bit different than other kids, is it not? Oh, it's very different. Our kids by nature have challenges with transitions. And one of the biggest transitions, whether on the spectrum or not, is going from two months off into what we could call a full-time job for our kids. It's very, very hard. Um, so we work very closely with our families. We don't have this idea that it's, you know, the school versus the family versus other supports. You have to work as a team together and be supportive in order for our kids to be successful so that the consistency happens across the board. It happens in school. It happens in the home. It happens everywhere. And so we work very, very closely with our families. They become our family. And Serena, I would think that at Lighthouse, there are little things that we take it for granted uh, when our kids are in school or as parents that have to be tweaked a little bit differently. Maybe music, maybe uh, like Halloween events at school, whatever it is, you, you don't want something that could trigger a child with autism on the spectrum, but also make sure that they enjoy the experience at the same time. Yeah, and that's one thing that's very important to us. You know, a lot of families articulate their frustration um, with the public school that the kids aren't invited on field trips because, you know, it can be a lot, certainly, mm -hmm. if they're mm -hmm. not trained properly. Um, you know, having different celebrations can be challenging. Um, one of the things that my son is most excited about when we open Lighthouse is all of the field trips and all of the parties. You know, we have celebrations for every holiday that there is out there and we gear those celebrations so that all of our kids can enjoy them and have a good time without being worried about any sensory issues or anything that might be challenging for them. Well, I, I, I don't understand Serena. Here we are in 2022 and there's still a stigma associated with the word autism. I have friends who have kids on the spectrum who are in high school and highly functioning and just because you're said you have autism. I mean, there could be people in everyday community, everyday life that have autism, quote unquote, that you don't know about. How how do we get people to move past that stigma when they hear that term? I, You know, it, it, it's interesting. When, when my son was first diagnosed with autism, I had absolutely no um, knowledge of the diagnosis at all. I think that as we're moving forward, it's certainly getting easier. What I find interesting is that it's the kids that don't have a problem with the diagnosis. It's more of the adults. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that we need to think about and one of the things that I talk about all the time is, you know, people might look at my son and say he isn't normal because he has autism, but I'm just curious as to who creates the baseline for normal. You know, I look at typically developing people all over the place, myself and my friends, there is very few similarities between us. So, you know, when we look at our kids, yeah, you know, they might perceive social situations differently and they might need to learn differently, but it just makes them part of, of what we say we are as a community, which is inclusive of everything. And, and let's face it, Serena, if you, if you think about your adult friends in day-to-day -day life and relatives, they all have some little quirk or little thing about them that makes them a little bit different. We're all different. That's what makes us human. It is. 
It's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that, that I talked about a lot is, you know, when, when COVID happened, this was something that autism families had been preparing for. <laughs> right. We'd been stuck in our homes teaching our kids for years and years and years because we felt we couldn't go out because society had this perception of, of us when we went out. You know, it's, it's something that we need to, to look at very closely and why do we think this way? You know, my child, if he went out into the community, doesn't appear any different than any other child. And yes, he might have communication delays and his social skills might not be the way a typical 16-year-old is, but that doesn't mean that he has any less of a right to be there, or it also doesn't mean he doesn't have anything less to contribute. Well, and that's a big thing. Yeah, absolutely. Very well said, Serena. Serena Thompson, Executive uh, Director of the Lighthouse Learning and Development Center. Get all the details on their website, lhldc.com, with their new 13,000-square-foot center on Edward Street in Aurora. Serena, thank you so much for joining me and talking about Lighthouse, and uh, and thank you so much for what Lighthouse is doing to help families and kids with autism on the spectrum in New York regions. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for recognizing our kids and, and letting us be a part of your show. We really appreciate it. Tina Cortez is next with Blue Door's program to make healthcare accessible to those in need. Joining us next on the feed, Alex Chang, Director of Programs, Housing and Health for Blue Door. Welcome back to the feed. Thank you so much for having me. For those who are unaware, what is Blue Door and what services does it provide? Well, this is a, the perfect time to ask. I mean, Blue Door, we've just celebrated our 40th anniversary. We are a, a social services agency that has served people that have, that experience homelessness within this region for the past 40 years. We run uh, three emergency housing services, one for men, one for families, one for youth. We also provide uh, housing options, transitional housing options for folks that are transitioning out of homelessness. Uh, and we also provide um, employment programs uh, for vulnerable individuals as well to help them get, up, uh, get back on their feet and uh, get training in the trades. You said that you celebrated your 40th anniversary. How has housing and the housing situation specifically, how has it changed here in York Region? Wow, I think uh, we face many, many challenges that, uh, that we see across, uh, across the country. One of the things that we see a lot more of is that people are staying longer with us because uh, housing and, uh, and finding affordable housing in our communities is uh, such, a, such, a, uh, such, a, uh, such a challenge that we haven't seen before. We've seen market conditions. Uh, in the present day, where rents have almost doubled in price, um, even in the last uh, in the last five to ten years, um, that means uh, uh, that means that a lot of people are having uh, having a lot of challenges trying to find a place that they can afford. Um, most of the people that we serve are either in social assistance and disabilities, and we all know that uh, uh, that the rates uh, for both for both haven't really caught up. Now, we know, Alex, that healthcare has made headlines in this province over the last little while. What can you tell us about Blue Door's Health Hub and what it offers? We've learned a lot over the last three years with the pandemic uh, operating a self-isolation site at Blue Door. And even before that, we've always seen the intersectionality between health and homelessness. Um, For Blue Door, uh, we spent many years uh, uh, really... uh, 
working with their clients and feeling uh, a lot of the helpless, uh, helplessness that they uh, that they presented. Um, a lot of the times when you're experiencing that uh, that moment of emergency where you're trying to find, um, you know, when how you're going to put a roof over your head. Um, some of the things that you neglect are those chronic health issues or um, uh, or acute health issues that you, uh, that you might experience. You kind of put it off. For us, when we're trying to help people um, really get back on their feet, um, it is really important for us to also uh, get uh, get individuals and families to think about you know how their healthcare and, and their wellness will contribute to that stability. So it is, it, it is with that really frame in mind that we've developed the health hub at Ludor to ensure that when individuals come into access services at Ludor, they have uh, a primary care physician that, uh, that's able to see them, they have a nurse that's able to see them, and allied professionals that we're, that we're able to leverage that can provide those services so they can receive them on site. But at the same time, we build uh, those connections uh, for them once they get back out into the community and, uh, um, and have housing of their own so that uh, they get connected with their local family health teams, uh, um, uh, family physicians of, of their own as well. Now, what if clients are not at Blue Door? What if perhaps they're in hospital? Is there support and help for them there? Definitely. I think uh, we've had an amazing partnership with uh, South Lake Hospital, where we've, uh, where we've now provided an English worker uh, through the same funding that's funding uh, a part of our uh, health hub as well, where we are providing uh, uh, South Lake Hospital with an outreach worker that works within the different departments of South Lake uh, to help facilitate uh, successful discharges uh, from both uh, uh, inpatient units and emergency departments as well. I think um, for for us, our approach is what is our role as a service provider, as a homelessness uh, uh, service provider in uh, um, in the healthcare of the individuals that we serve. We know that a lot of folks that come in through Blue Door will end up accessing the emergency um, the emergency department and uh, for issues that they can uh, that they can get resolved out in the community. We also know that at the hospital, um, sometimes they need a little bit of assistance in working with um, uh, the same individuals that we serve and trying to figure out you know, what are those natural supports that they may have that they can um, uh, uh, that they can look into when uh, when they're planning for a discharge uh, back into into the community and into housing. Perhaps it is uh, finding emergency housing or uh, or referring to other community services that we can then assist them to. So it's really two, a two prong approach. Uh, how can we provide healthcare within uh, within Blue Door? But how do we partner with healthcare providers like South Lake as well to bring our expertise to them? So where does this the funding come from? Whether it's for an on-site nurse at at Blue Door or an in-reach worker at the hospital, where does that funding come from? We are so happy to be partnering with uh, TD Ready Commitment. They've provided us with a grant, uh, a three-year grant, to be able to pilot these uh, these programs and to be able to, you know, show uh, our partners and um, uh, 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 and different government uh, government bodies and funders that this is a solution that will lead to uh, to better outcomes for individuals. So they've uh, happily been able to work with us um, uh, for the next three years, providing these services. And Alex, if our listeners want more information or they want to help out themselves. How can they connect? They can connect with us through our website, www.ludor.ca, or they can find us at Ludor Support in, in social media, uh, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and so forth. That's terrific. Thanks for your time, Alex. Thank you so much. Pleasure. 
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.